My experience living in this house for 30-something years and taking the same walks for all this time, I'm looking at the same things over and over again. I've painted the same places. I could show you so many instances of repetition and how different everything looked. Welcome to the Flying Fruit Bowl, a platform dedicated to the discussion and exploration of art and the creative process. I'm the host and creator, Ona, and this week's episode is a conversation with the amazing Susan Stillman. Susan is a fine artist from the USA whose work explores the aesthetics of our surroundings. Through the use of painting, Susan recontextualizes the landscape, often rendering the world with shapes, lines, and textures that depict loose, fragmentary scenes. Okay, so I will start where I start with everybody, which is just tell us a bit about yourself and how you became an artist. Okay, that was interesting going back and kind of thinking about all of that. I have always been an artist as far back as I can remember. I think the realization of that came to me when I was still in elementary school. I have a memory of drawing the burning of Atlanta in colored chalks on Miss Vigiano's whole blackboard and reenacting a scene from Gone with the Wind with a friend of mine for a book report. So, oh. uh, you know, that's that's one memory that I have that goes way back there. Um, but in high school, I started uh, getting attention for the work that I was doing. My parents were encouraged to send me out and get some studies. So I... I actually had an amazing anatomy teacher when I was in high school nearby at the county center, uh, Stephen Rogers Peck, who has a great book. And um, I took painting classes and drew from life. And by the time I was ready to go to, actually before I was ready to go to college, I went to RISD's pre-college and fell in love with the school, developed a portfolio, and with the help of my wonderful high school art teacher, Mrs. Dorrit Wolf, she insisted I go to RISD, which I did in Providence, Rhode Island. And um, it was a phenomenal experience. Uh, I loved every minute of being on campus. I loved the classroom. I loved the critiques. The tr- I found my tribe. We all have to find our, our tribe. And... I was there. Uh, The decision I had to make in school was whether to go into fine art or illustration, which was a more rigorous, more academic kind of an education. And I chose illustration for that reason. I wanted to really get good at drawing. I loved and still love figure drawing um, from life. And I wanted to have something to make a living when I got out of school with my artwork. So I, in the days that I got out, you could still make a living as an illustrator. It's a little tricky these days, but um, I also spent a year, my junior year in Rome with EHP, the European Honors Program, which was magical seeing uh, the, the Italian paintings in situ where they were meant to be and we were a very small group. Uh, we had our own studios. We were completely free. There were no classes. It was an amazing year and um, life-changing forever. So Italy will always be the place where my heart 
resides. I, I will go back there forever and still feel at home in Italy. Anyway, I graduated college. I moved back to New York, which is where I grew up. I, I grew up outside of the city in a suburb, but I moved into Manhattan because I always wanted to and started taking my portfolio around as a freelance illustrator and went to magazines and, and book publishers. And it took me about a year before I was able to make enough money to move into the Manhattan area and make a living as an illustrator. Um, and I had some wonderful experiences. I loved it for a period of time, like anything else. There were about seven, eight years that it was really fun. And then there were about six or seven years where it was a lot less fun and I gradually moved out of it. But I had a job. One of my favorite jobs was illustrating Joyce's Ulysses for a centennial edition, a boxed edition, a um, hundred year. And it was a year long project with wonderful people. And I had to get through that book, which was really hard. And I, and as I, I was, when I was an illustrator, I was not a painter at that time yet. I was a really draftsman. I could draw. And the, the work of mine that got attention and got, got me jobs were these monoprints that I had just um, experimented with in Rome. And I showed them in my portfolio along with all kinds of other things when you're trying to hone into what it is that you're going to do, uh, your own particular voice. And that's what got me work. And I was doing these kind of monochromatic monoprints. They were all sapia. And um, I got a lot of work in New York Magazine. I was doing regular illustrations for them. I also worked in pen and ink. And, and I did these monochromatic paintings were kind of old old school paintings where you did the whole grise in one um, monochromatic color and then added glazes of color. So before I knew how to be a colorist, that's what I would do. Um, and it was great for a while and I got lots of work and I was enjoying it. And then it wasn't, it got, I, I needed to do other things. I needed to learn about color and paint. I knew that I had to tackle that. So I started to do that on my own. And I started to do my own work and work from life and learn about color and kind of uh, reduce my palette to a very small specific number of colors. So I knew what I had and what to, how to mix color so that was years of just learning how to see and learning how to break down what's in a color, warm, cool, all of that stuff. Started with still life. That was that was how I learned about color. And landscape was was nothing that I really went near for many, many years. Always the figure and always uh, still life as well. And I was getting jobs doing that. At the same time, I accidentally fell into teaching. It's not something that I ever thought I would do, but one of my my art director from New York Magazine, J.C. Suarez, I was probably 23 years old. He invited me to bring my portfolio into his classroom to talk about what it's like to be a, a young freelance illustrator and how to go about that. And I had so much fun that day with all these students talking about what I do. And you talk to artists all the time, you know, 
artists love to talk about what they do and, and what excites them. And so this experience um, led me to pursue teaching. And it happened that the chairperson of the department in illustration at Parsons was an art director I was working for at New York Magazine, um, Judy Sue Fendelman. And uh, she helped me get a job as an undergraduate um, part-time instructor in illustration. I started that when I was 25 and I'm still at Parsons and it's a long time. It's been wow. 40. I've been teaching 40 years, wow. just two days a week, just a you know, couple of days a week is just enough to keep me connected to this wonderful community of colleagues and young people. And this give and take is it just feeds me so much. And it's an extension of what I loved about going to school and what I loved about college. So I'm still in the classroom and still really enjoying it. And at a certain point, illustration, the fashions were changing and my my style of loose kind of realistic painting was not, not in style anymore. Mm -hmm. And I did a couple of things. I needed to find some other way to make a living. And I needed to develop a body of work. I wanted to be a painter. And so I took the opportunity and applied to Brooklyn College for an MFA. I figured it wouldn't hurt to have an MFA if I ever wanted to be a full-time teacher, which I never actually became. But uh, the... The department at the time, let's say it was the late 80s, and it was the only place that was really a good home for, a, for an observational or figurative painter. Leonard Anderson was there. Philip Perlstein was there. Lois Dodd was my teacher. And um, I was able to do it part-time over the course of five years. So I was still illustrating. I was still teaching. And I had two children while I was doing that. Um, I would take a semester off for each pregnancy, you know, have six months off. And I finally finished up. I think I was pregnant with my son when I finished up and I was like done. I just yeah. can't do this. But this this was the beginning of, of my landscape painting. I had started looking at artists like Wolf Kahn. There was a show of his pastels and the pastels were extraordinarily beautiful and the color that he found and his soft edges and his it was so beautifully observed but not not rendered it was just through through his own eyes I love Jane Freilicher I looked at Fairfield Porter these were all inspirations to me and before we had the kids my husband and I he's a landscape architect we oh. went to the UK. Okay. And we would just drive through the countryside. We we went up from Saffron Walden up into Yorkshire and Lake District and the Cotswolds, yeah. just wherever we wanted to go. Yeah. We went to Scotland and Wales, and it was amazing. And I was so struck by the dichotomy of the landscape in Britain. I was the beauty of the of the meat fields and the walls and the trees you know just brought back all the historic landscape paintings of the 1800s and the 1700s 
but also the what I fell in love with was the cottages and the cottage gardens and these little entryways with small, perfect, beautiful gardens. And I, I took a lot of pictures and I went home and that became the basis for my thesis and, and the bodies of work that I was doing. I was doing these very large um, paintings from England. I think Bath, I have one of the Bath River and wow. the London Doorway. I'll have to send them to you. Yeah, please do. Um, I'd love to see them. I think on my website, I have to send them to you. You would probably get a kick. Of course, there's one thatched cottage with a, and then a cottage house. And anyway, and, and Pit, Pit Lockery, I did um, this wonderful hillside and garden and, and the stone building is still one of my favorites. So that was my new direction. And when was that? That was, so the kids are in their thirties. That was about 30 years ago. And, and uh, that's all I've done ever since is landscape work. At the same time I was doing that, I had an epiphany. I was doing paintings in my neighborhood of houses and entryways that were influenced by these English experiences. And I looked at these and I thought, nobody's ever going to want to buy these. This is somebody else's house. And I thought, you know, this could be a business doing paintings of people's houses. I don't know about what happens in Britain, but there are a lot of um, people that will buy drawings or watercolors of their home. And I thought I would take it to another level and I would do these canvases and they would be kind of major paintings and collaborations with people. Well, it, it I started it as a real business and I did the whole um, business plan and I, the website. And for 30 years, I've been doing commissions um, and it's a very different kind of painting than what I do on my own. So these were paying the bills and they're more formal and they're I mean, I do have, still have the website up. I'm not doing them anymore. I'll tell you about that afterwards. But um, they were a lot of fun. And I, I really loved the experience of working individually with clients. It was very collaborative. I would get all kinds of information. It was not at all the kind of thing that a lot of people do where you take a picture and you copy a picture. Nothing at all like that. I would take a hundred pictures and I would piece things together. It was very much challenging and like a puzzle and playing with perspective and bending perspective and um because the camera is just impossible it doesn't give you what you need anyway that was a lot of fun and I was doing that it took over illustration so I was cobbling together a living as a teacher and doing that and always doing my own work on the side not really having any time at all to try and get it out in the world, just satisfied to get it done, which I was always doing. Um, occasionally I would take a sabbatical or something. I always had with Parsons, I always had very long summers and very long um, breaks. College is wonderful that way. You have a month in the winter, a month and a half, you have three months in the summer. So I've always been doing that. And um what else? I became allergic to oils. I was an oil painter. I became allergic to oils in right. my 30s. So I had to transition into acrylics, 
which was the best thing in the world because I absolutely love working in acrylics. And it totally changed my palette, much cleaner, much brighter, much more control over the color. I can keep working, don't have to, I don't have to make mud, you know, I can just keep working. And, um, there's only one thing that I miss is the scraping down that the idea of getting getting rid of your edges with a palette knife if you're is a wonderful thing which I don't have with acrylics. Anyway, we interestingly enough we just be, were back in England in March, and I'll wow. tell you about that a little bit. But um, illustration ended, home portraits ended at COVID, uh, to twenty twenty. Just stopped doing them, figured nobody else wants them anyway right now. And I was suddenly done. I was suddenly done. I will, I can't do any more commissions. I just can't. I'm at a point in my life where I'm devoting all of my time to my own work. And I have a little more time to try and get it out in the world, which I've neglected. Um, I've heard you talk about having children and what that's like for an artist in your other Mm. podcasts. My experience has been positive, only positive. Um, I had two children. I scaled back a little bit. And of course, because all studio time had to be paid for. So I wasn't really making any money when I was working for a few years, but it all came back it always came back and and it was well worth it it was really fun all the adventures it i it was nothing nothing that i ever questioned some people uh should i shouldn't i i always knew that i wanted you know that was just a certainty in my life so um and now everybody's grown and i'm on my own and having a grand time you know lots of lots more time for myself and my own work. The, what I find very interesting is the idea of balance. You've balanced a lot of different yeah. things over the years and managed to, to create space for everything at the right time. Because the interesting thing for me is that you're doing these home portraits and you're devoting all the time to that. But then you've now realized, oh, actually, I need time for myself and for the other stuff I want to do. And I think that's actually really nice because now you have the time to do what you would like to do when you'd like to do it because you did all of this work is like the hard work has paid off all this like 30 years later. And I think that's actually a really good reminder for myself and for other people that hard work does pay off. It may not be anytime soon. You know, the payoff is not tomorrow. The payoff may be a decade from now, two decades from now, you never know. And I think that's a really good reminder, actually. I have a good story. Um, I was very, and I was just beginning to dabble in color. And I I got this job that absolutely terrified me. I, got, I was asked to do a time cover. And I was up all night. The deadlines are horrible. And I painted a painting and I hated it. And so I did it again. And I hated it. And I did it five times. I was up all night. They all looked alike. I froze. I just didn't have the chops at that point in my life to really pull this off. I mean, I went in, the art director was lovely. I got paid. It wasn't used. And I had to grapple with 
this A is not going to ruin my career. It's one bad experience. And I realized that this thing that I was doing as an artist, I was not going to hit my prime for quite a long time. I realized I had a lot of living to do and I had a lot of skill building to do. And and I look back on that and I I was thinking about myself at this stage of my life at that point when I was 23 or 24 years old. And here I am and feeling like, yeah, that was right. You know, it's a, it's a lifelong, if you're lucky enough <laughs> to be alive a long time, it's a lifelong endeavor. Yes. That's something I say, something I say to a lot of artists, like being an artist is a lifelong career. You're not going to have a good career for five years and then retire. The whole point is that you're learning every day. You're trying out new things. You're experimenting. You're a different person every single day and your work will reflect that. It's not just a case of like, who, like you wouldn't want to be like, cool, in five years time, I'll have made all the best work I could make because then what are you going to do after that? Yeah. You know, the whole point is that you try things out and see where you go. And, you know, you go into being an artist as an uncertain career, like you're very aware that there is no guarantees. So I kind of feel like it's an exciting adventure and it can also be terrifying. But I also feel like you should be open to possibilities because you don't know where you don't what you as with your case, what you end up doing is so different from the starting point and you're embracing that, which is the best thing. But maybe people need to just embrace stuff, you know? Oh, for sure. I, I look back on the work that I did years ago and I couldn't do that work now. Mm. It was something else. Ah, dude, that's a really good, that's a really good point to make as well, actually. The idea of like where you are at this moment in time, you're producing the work you're meant to produce because you're right, like in a year's time, in six months' time, even in six years' time, you won't be producing the same work because you'll be a different person or things will have changed. Like that's a really good point to make, actually. That's interesting, actually. You know, it's another funny story. When I was in grad school and at one of these major critiques where you have all your work up on the wall. Oh, yeah. Lois, Lois Dodd made a, a remark that I just, I I still remember because it was so right on point. She looked at this barn that I had painted. It was a Litchfield barn. And she said, what is it? Oh, she said, I think that palette belongs to Wolf Con. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so right, because that's who I was looking at. And and his purple whites were in, influencing my palette at the time because I was learning about color, you know. And it takes a while to work through all of that, to, to, mm. in, to kind of sponge it in and then to expunge it out again. Yeah, because it's like you have to kind of know yourself and know what you'd like before you can understand, I guess, not even style necessarily, but like your voice as an artist. Because the thing is, like, it's very easy to look at other people and be like, I want to do that. But you realize, like, that's not you. Your, your work is always going to be your own experiences through your own worldview and you can't copy somebody else's because you're not them. You can do similar stuff, but it would never yes. be the same. And Stephen Sondheim, my favorite, my favorite, favorite composer and Broadway uh, artist in uh, Sunday in the Park with George. What does he said? Don't worry about being new. It'll always be new. It's in your, you know, through you. Yeah, it's true. I think, because I think a lot of artists worry about what, I don't think they worry, but maybe they try to be original 
or they I don't know it, it's hard because like we live in a society where that you know where there's millions of artists and there's an influx of imagery every single day and it's like how do you stand out but then sometimes it's not actually about standing out it's about carving your own lane doing things your way figuring out yourself first you know if your work looks similar to somebody else so what it's not the same because it's it's created through a very different lens through de- very different unless you're copying it directly of course it's created for, with a very different intention and i think that's really what people need to think about is their intentions not necessarily how things physically look because you know everyone can have an image everyone can paint an image of a barn but the intention for that image is, can be different the way in which you explain that image will be different the way in which you engage people with that work will be different i think a lot of the time what you say about your work is often possibly more important than the work itself because people are always drawn to images images are visual people are visual people but knowing the kind of story or the impetus or the idea behind a piece of work is sometimes a lot more powerful for people to connect with it. I don't know. Okay. It is. It's interesting. It's interesting to see a subject uh, approached in so many different ways, but landscape, everything, there's nothing original. There's nothing original in this world, but it's just different the way people uh, find their way into it. So, Actually, for those who haven't seen your work, can you please describe it? I am excited by things that I see. Mostly light. The way light will change an everyday view that I walk by. Um, I think about color. I think about shapes and composition. Abstract relationships. Tonal relationships. I'm trying to get immediacy into my paintings. I'm trying to make them look um a little bit effortless. I don't want I don't want to show the effort in the paintings. I want them to look kind of wild. So what kind of like subject matters are you drawn to in terms of like you say landscapes, but they're not just necessarily fields or beaches or seascapes. They're very much like for the most part city based. Yes. Well it's it's interesting because traveling every time i've tried to do something that's just too beautiful like a beautiful you know <laughs> it's always a little more challenging and sometimes i wind up just chucking it because um there's something about uh what i love is familiarity um mm. things that i see all the time shapes collections of shapes uh geometric forms uh, in contrast to the shapes and um, and and the textures of foliage, those two things are directly in contrast with each other all the time, and I and I love that, and I find that's what I'm most drawn to. It's almost like um, my own still life, you know, your mm-hmm. set of objects and shapes that you rearrange, and so I'm walking through the landscape is my still life i i live in a hilly neighborhood i usually take my walk in the evening when the sun is really changing quickly from the last hour and a half and it's like um a treasure hunt or a scavenger hunt and i'm on the lookout you know and suddenly the light will hit a corner and the top of a tree or something and i'll go about framing it in my phone so i'm always photographing and 
I do that when we travel as well, when we're in the car, I'm always framing and photographing and just, it's, it's really when the light changes things and it, it makes you look at something with a completely, it's almost, um, it doesn't matter what it is. It's not a formal thing. It's not the thingness of what you're looking at. It's the pieces of it coming together. I mean, that's what led me into the series Peripheral Visions. But And before that, the series Local Color really started to to do that. Um, pieces, a tree, uh, a tree with a bit of a, a, a building behind it. Um, all the different colors of green. I love that. Um, all the different colors of white and how how the sun will create a warm light and a cool shadow, all of those things. Um, yeah. So uh, I'm obviously as a photographer, I'm very, very interested with the idea that you would take an image on a phone or a camera and then reproduce that image through paint. So I'm kind of curious, like, what does a painting do that a photograph doesn't do? Oh, so much, so, so much. But just even the history of taking the photographs and working from photographs, mm -hmm. That's one thing that I really um, am grateful for my illustration background. Um, as an illustrator, you have to gather reference from lots of sources, put them together like a puzzle and not be beholding to the photograph and not, not copy. You never, ever copy. And uh, there's so much editing. I, I really... Each composition is basically an abstract in the beginning. And I don't do a drawing first and I don't do a drawing on a canvas. I just um, pull up the images that I'm working from. They jar my memory. I have framed it in the camera. Don't always use the exact framing. Often I'm changing the relationships and I just draw the shapes and I paint big shapes right away. And, and, Unfortunately, I usually love that painting at that stage more than any time. I love the block-in colors in the very beginning of the painting. So I've learned to lay them down on the ground and not touch them for a while and not go back to them because I will, uh, I'm always afraid of overdoing it and I sometimes have to abandon something if it gets too overdone. Um, but working from a photograph, oh my gosh, working from photographs is just a pleasure. Uh, it's it's changed so much and becomes so much easier. When I started, it was film. You had to decide from contact sheets. You had to spend yeah. a lot of money and you would yeah. take photographs and not know what you were going to get. And you would spend all this money and get terrible photographs and, you know, what were you going to do? And then um, came the time when you could do your own prints. And I did that. And I would go through reams and reams of paper and put eight and a half by 11s on the wall all over the place. And then came um, the iPhone. Oh, my God, the iPhone's fantastic. And I have a big iPad. And so now I just look at things on my iPad and I can make things bigger and smaller. And I just go through them and... And I don't have to print anything anymore. It's fabulous. It's so fabulous. I love it. Um, so I'm not, I, I love to teach students also how to work from photographs because it really is, a, it is a learning curve. You really do um, 
have to let things go, just let things go. And um, I do a, a lot of eliminating and building of things that you don't see in the photograph, textures and colors coming through and all of that. What can we learn about the human condition from looking at images of the landscape? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> the human condition, I, you know, what I think my landscapes might inspire in other people might be just opening your eyes and noticing things that you would mm. not normally notice. And that's yeah. what that's the feedback that I usually get from from viewers um, that they will now look around with a little bit of a more attuned awareness of what they're seeing every day. I love that. The human condition, I don't think about that. I can't because I would get so bogged down in in the world's problems and whatnot. I just have to think about what I love to do. Because to me, I think your work, your work is, seems very, it's, it's, for me, it's weird for me to say, because obviously I'm not from America, but it seems like strangely like nostalgic in a way. But it seems, yeah. as you know, as you said earlier, it seems very familiar. It, it's kind of, it's almost like archetypal American places, but not actually quite as you remember them. And I think for me, it's, it's really interesting because I'm a huge fan of Americana generally. Like it's, I've never been to America yet, but it's definitely in my plans at some point. But if I know if I know I'll go over, I'd have to be over for a long time because I'd be don't want to leave. Um, but just your work is very like the the reason that it struck me is because it it kind of it, it's a bit of different things. And I think part of it is because you spoke about the idea of fragments and the way that the imagery, particularly like um peripherisions, it like the images are very fragmented, and it's the idea of like they're just kind of glimpses of different parts of the neighborhood or different parts of like somebody's life even like, and I think I'm really curious about this idea of like your work in relation to memory. Like how important, I guess, I guess the question I'm asking is like, is memory important to you and your work or that particular series? And if so, how? It is. I'm not necessarily conscious of that, hmm. but it absolutely is in there. It is so much a part of it. And again, the feedback that I get, um memory observation um and also um familiarity people think they're looking at uh their own childhood neighborhoods the that mm. you mentioned nostalgia i i feel that's in there um of course a lot of this you don't really realize it until you hear what how people react to the work but my experience living in this house for 30 something years and going wow. taking the same walks for all this time, I'm looking at the same things over and over again. I painted the same images or say, not images, but the same places over and over again. And now this tree is dead and now this is replaced by another tree. And I could show you so many instances of re re repetition and how different everything looks. And I'll I'll take a walk and suddenly somebody's cut down this beautiful tree and I, I just want to knock on the door and tell them they're they're just murderers. It's just how could you do that? You know, they're changing the landscape all the time. It's it's always changing. So the paintings really are 
our little time capsules, their little memories. And I do think they remind people of their own memories as well. So one thing I'm always interested in, in art in general, is the idea of reality within people's work. Because your your work, as you've said, like when you paint from a photograph, you're not painting the direct photograph. You're adding, you're taking away, you're building, you're kind of almost constructing your own world based on a place that exists. How do you approach reality in your work? Like, are you here to like, are you out here creating lifelike images? Or because your work is not abstract, but it's not realistic either. It kind of it sits in that, as I always say to everybody that I have on the podcast with similar work. Here's this kind of netherworld that um uh, an artist friend called Mark Thompson created this term. This kind of netherworld in between the real and the abstract. And it's kind of like, how do you approach that in your work? Like, what kind of reality are you trying to paint? It's interesting because I, you know, I there's a lot of abstract work that I absolutely love. And I feel these are abstract paintings underneath. Mm. And, but I've, I've never been somebody to work from nothing. I have Mm. to work from what I see. So I'm looking to find a, a middle ground where I'm painting from what I see and hopefully infusing it with more of myself in what I leave out or, or the movement of my hand or the, 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 um, kind of ferocity of the brushwork. Um, I hope that that will kind of bring to mind action painting or abstract work as well. Um, and I'm, and I, a struggle that I've been, uh, working through my whole life has been, this little finding that voice that says stop stop Hmm. don't go any further you know leave that out you don't need to draw those windows you don't need to put in the clabber if you looked at my um home portraits website which is a separate website it's totally the opposite you have to get all the detail and all that stuff it's still very brushy and painterly but in that context i was doing finished finished work and Hmm. this I want to keep open and uh, more alive, you know? Yeah, I like that. I think that's really interesting because I think the one thing that I'm always interested in is how, why people choose to paint in the way that they paint. Because, you know, you could create a beautifully rendered realistic image. Like you could do that with enough time and skill, but you choose not to. And I'm just always curious why people choose not to. Because I feel like to me, that kind of work is much more interesting because it gives the viewer just enough, just enough for them to just to, for them to determine what they're looking at, but not enough for them to uh, have the whole picture. Like it, it kind of creates the space for them to think about the work. And you know, there's like a a slight ambiguity to such works because you're not sure if you're looking at like a fading dream, uh, an altered memory. If you're looking at a finished piece, if you're looking at something that's in progress, and I kind of feel like it's almost symbolic of life in a way, in terms of like. Nothing's ever really fully finished. We're all kind of in progress. Everything's in kind of different states all the time. So I like this idea of like trying to possibly emulate the idea of, I guess, the sense of togetherness within your work. It's so it's it's like that. I think in all the arts, you always want to um, allow the viewer or the reader or you know the listener to in to interpret 
in their own way as well. That you want them to be able to, you want to leave it open enough for them. You don't want to force feed them. You don't want to give them too much information. You want to incite their their imagination as well. Um, you don't want to be too literal. I used to feel that way in illustration. You don't want to give away too much. You want to look at an, an illustration and and have it not be, oh, this is the guy with the pitchfork and this and that. You want them to find a metaphor of sorts to the, the basis of the story. So peripheral visions, what was yes. the initial inspiration for the series? I had so many things I wanted to paint. I have so many thousands of images wow. archived. And I had been working on very large paintings. And I thought, let's change it up. Let's go small. Before Peripheral Visions, I did a series called Local Color, which is also on the website. And I would give myself simple parameters. And that one, everything was 18 inches high, different widths. Because I'm always thinking about how these are going to be exhibited together in different ways. I like mm. when when images kind of have conversations and speak to each other. And I don't think about that before I do them, but I play yeah. around with that after. So local color started to, um, I was working on wood. I was open and much faster and freer. And, um, and that kind of catapulted me to this idea of, of of fragments on out of the corner of my eye and if i was not doing a house not doing a tree i was doing like a combination of shapes that you wouldn't necessarily focus on it might be a really interesting progression of panels um and also charting all of these changes that are absolutely happening all the time the ephemeral quality of light the 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 images that I paint only look like they look for maybe one to three seconds and then they change. So this kind of thing is impossible to do if you're painting outside, which I just don't like painting outside anyway. So I like painting in my studio, it's much easier. Hmm. But you couldn't, you know, you have to kind of capture a, a compilation of moments in if you're painting directly from life. This this is like catching a firefly, you know, and grabbing that light for just a second. It just keeps going. I mean, I have over a hundred panels and I just keep going. I just, I'm still doing it. That's it. So it's an ongoing series. Yes. I love that so much because see, what I've, like I said, that interests me deeply because I've always feel like we always put an end. Like I think particularly with art and series and bodies of work, particularly if you're exhibiting work, you always feel like there has to be like an end for you then to move on to a next series. But I don't think we ever really think, or at least not a lot of artists that I've met do that, where they have continuous series like alongside each other. Because I feel like sometimes it can be very hard to split up the different elements of your work enough to figure out if they're different series or not. Because you know, you don't know if like say an image you're creating is actually just made for the peripheral vision series or if it's just actually something entirely different but because they might be quite similar it's like how do you like determine what belongs in the peripheral vision series the fragmentary element i think mm. pretty much i mean there there are some that are a little bit more finished there's the process that i that i have kind of come to through this series as well 
that really works for me. Um, I get, I prepare these panels, most, they're wood, most of them. And I lay down priming and I lay down a very random texture. I experiment with lots of different textures. And so then I, I find the textures help keep me from overdoing and getting too tight and, and it gives me a, a, an ability to layer and have colors come through in, a, in an interesting way. I'll also put an under color, whether it's pink or yellow or whatever, um, sienna sometimes. And and then I'll just um, start. I'll just I'll lay in a painting. It'll take maybe 20 minutes to a half hour and I'll put it on the floor. And right now I have about 10 or 15 on the floor. Right. in various states so i'll i'll kind of look at something for a while because i really like the layers and i don't want to mess them up hmm. and i'll look at it for a while and then i'll kind of get ready to wreck it because it, the next sitting will either move it along or destroy it entirely hmm. so i will then take the second sitting and see if i can start building what i'm looking for and I'll often work um, two or three sittings before I know if, if the painting's going to work. And some of the ones that I think are going to work, I abandon. And and some others just kind of paint themselves. It's so interesting um, how that happens. So how do you choose which compositions to paint? I go through my, my images. And, you know, sometimes I know right away hmm. that I have to paint this. But sometimes it's just the going back and the memory of that, sparking that memory ah. and grabbing that image, pull it up on the iPad and just lock it in with local color, just like a, you know, a big block of color. So it's an abstract shape yeah. in the beginning. That's such an interesting way of working, though, because it's like it's almost like you let them rest. And then which the ones that kind of rise to the surface in your mind, you're like, hey, this is what I'm going to, to create. Or like this image here is worth painting. Or Because I feel like I'm also very interested how artists choose to paint. Because the thing about painting and art is that it's very still. Like you've captured one specific moment in time. It's, it's very hard or it's, it's not as easy. Because some people do it to capture movement or several moments in time through painting. Typically, it's one scene. And I'm always interested in why people choose that one scene, because it's like, that's a choice. You've made a choice. That's very much your perspective of the world. So yeah, I'm kind of just curious about that. It's very interesting working in these two different scales. Uh, I'm working in this series of peripheral visions, quite small, fragmentary. But I'm also always working on large canvases as well. Um, the largest canvas that I can do in my attic studio, I'm, um, you know, I have a couple of rooms up at the top of my house, uh, is about 64 inches by 46 inches. Wow. And um, yeah. so some, I'm always working on large canvases as well. The larger canvases are, are it's a whole other kind of uh, journey to, uh, there's got to be some more complexity, something to keep me uh, really engaged in a longer, longer pursuit. And those I could be working on for 
a year or two. I'm always working on multiples. So I, mm. I'll i be working on something for a while. I may put it away for a couple of months and then come back to it with a fresh eye. Um, and, right. and I'm looking for different things in these different scales. Um, uh, after the fact, if you look at a lot of the larger canvases, they're kind of um, like uh, through the looking glass where you can kind of enter a scene as a, as a participant. Whereas the little ones you're walking by and they're kind of flickering on the on the outskirts of your vision. So what kind of role does a viewer play in your work? Um, well, I'm the viewer, I guess, hmm. as I'm painting, as I'm looking at the world. And so a viewer is really just kind of stepping into my eyes, my shoes and seeing it the way I see it. Yeah, that's interesting. But do you have a certain person in mind when you're creating work? Or are you just like the people who will be attracted to this will be drawn to it? I don't really think about that. I, I okay. what what I'm 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 I don't really think a lot anymore. You know, I kind of shut down that part of my brain. And I try to work from this intuition or drive what excites me and what what pushes me and what I like and you know it, it from the very moment when I'm capturing something with the camera I'm I'm, ex, I'm excited to see something it's like oh look at that shadow oh look at the corner of that so it you know it makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up that that kind of excitement and awe of what you're seeing and you know later on you're talking in your notes about traveling and, and how mm-hmm. that informs your awareness and what you're doing in your life when you're traveling you're always an outsider you're always kind of looking in from from this vantage point of not being a participant and it's it's wonderful it's being a fly on the wall it's it's being observant all the time and being amazed and in awe all the time and i kind of feel that that state of being is my goal as an artist is trying to keep that state of being in play as I look at everyday world as well and try not to be oblivious to things that are really beautiful everywhere you look and I I don't like to talk about beauty because beauty could be deadly you know and beauty um, can can be a, a catchword for over nostalgic or pretty or things like that. But you're looking for meaning perhaps or excitement, visual excitement or stimulation in everything that you see everywhere you go, the way the sun is going down, the way the clouds are moving across the sky, um, the color of the pavement, uh, the the shapes yeah. of the, of the shadows that the tree is is throwing on the pavement, um, the difference in the warm and cool in in what you're looking at, the balance of all of these things. It's always a, a, a juggle of contrasts. And there's a whole list of elements. If you break down what makes a good picture, as I do with my students, we kind of break it down into different separate elements that you can, can um, tackle individually and then Put them all together. So, in each of these elements, you want this vibration of contrasts. You want 
large and small. You want dark and light. You want warm and cool, um, textured and smooth. You want all of these opposites uh, intermingling on multiple layers uh, of meaning in your piece. And uh, that just happens with experience and years of looking, I think. And so do you think that being an artist gives you a different perspective of the world? I do. I absolutely do. It's such a gift. I also think that it, you don't have to be an artist to hone your eye um, and appreciate what you see. And I think that's something that artists help in the world. That's uh, kind of the role of art in the world is to share um, this with people who may not do it naturally. You know, it may not be something they think about, but when they look at a piece of art that stimulates them, that ex excites something in them, it invites them to look at the world in a new way. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. you said about the idea, like the contrast between warm and cool. And like just that idea is like a really, like that brings to mind like lit windows in blue hour. Because when I'm walking down the street and it's like blue hour and like, you know, it's getting darker and you have people who have lights on in their houses, like that contrast has always been beautiful to me. And it always conjures up this idea of like people are living their lives very differently to you and you don't realize it. And so, but just because the idea of like the contrast and like just when you say things like that, where you talk about your work, like it makes sense that you're an artist because you're an observer, but you also act upon those observations as opposed to just saying like, oh, that's nice. You actually are like, I want to share this with people. I think that's really interesting, actually. Yeah, that's part of wanting to get the work out. It's, an, you know, I, I don't really spend a lot of time thinking about selling these days. You know, hmm. I, I, I'm mostly concentrating on sharing Crazy. the work. Yeah, putting it out in the world. I I want. I don't. It's a big job marketing and and doing yeah. that media, all of this. It's it's a lot of work. Um, I have freed up a lot more time for that nowadays. But it's. It can be totally overwhelming, and it also can paralyze you, because yeah. you're getting so much in um input and seeing so much, seeing so much wonderful work all the time you know, is both stimulating and paralyzing too, because you don't want to compare yourself. Hmm. You want to be inspired by other people. Um, and it's hard to keep that balance going. So you've been creating work for the last 30 years. Like, is there any kind of particular time period that you could, that you place on your work? Or do you prefer your work to be timeless? Well, I think about the timeless quality of landscape. Um, I you know, looking over your notes, I was I was remembering that um, I was always concerned with the figure. I think when the figure is in a in a piece of artwork, you're automatically um, freezing a moment in mm. all these ways. Um, also, um, landscape work can be um, freezing a moment too. Like if you look at the constables. And, yeah. and the constables that he sold, his commercial work, right? They're portraits of particular places. 
there's always the cows, there's always the shepherds, there's always, that's very much um, kind of boxing him into his time period. If you look at his his uh, studies from life, they are timeless. They are, uh, could have been done today. They could have been done 400 years ago. They're just observation, color, weather, uh, time of day. They're beautiful. Corot, when we were in the Louvre a few years ago, the room of Corot studies from um, the south of France and from Italy, they're as fresh today as they were when he did them. His studio paintings are a formula, you know, and they're the formula of what was selling and what he had to do to make a living, just like we have to do. You know, I had to do my home portraits. That was a formula. Illustration is a formula. Whatever, you know, we're the product of our own culture and our own time period. But what we do kind of from observation or skill building or drawing from life, any of that, to me, that that spans uh, ages. That you, the drawings of um, the drawings of Michelangelo, the drawings of Watteau, are as fresh as today as they were. I I feel like I'm meeting the artist when I look at his drawings from life. Not so the paintings that they did. You know, not so. That's totally a different animal. So you really, I don't think about necessarily uh, timelessness, but I kind of see the landscape. It is a, it is my place. It is suburbia of this time period. Um, it is capturing something of of that, but there is a there is a lot of landscape work that is timeless. The reason I ask is because like houses are quite prevalent in your work and like houses are always in some way going to be dated back exactly. to a certain time period. That's why I asked about timelessness because houses are prevalent. And actually yeah. the idea of houses anyway, like that, like, I guess why are houses particularly because they do, they are a lot more um, time specific. Why are they so prevalent in your work? And like, do you often think about like the symbology of, of like houses? I, you know, I always even as a child, I've always enjoyed looking at houses and imagining the people living in them and imagining yeah. what it would be living them. Um, yeah. Always. Yeah. And my family did too. I remember driving around with my parents and my mother looking at houses and saying, I wish my father had bought that house 50 years ago. It was $20,000. And he just was so, you know, she just loved, loved beautiful houses. Um, and I don't love beautiful houses so much as I like kind of, um, these 1900, 1920 houses that are in my neighborhood, but they're mixed in with other eras, 1950s and ugly aluminum siding and all of that. I try not to kind of be judgmental about mm -hmm. them because yes, they're houses, but Again, they're my still life. They're shapes for me. They're geometric shapes. They're planes that catch the light and they're sharp and in contrast to the, the brushy foliage. So yeah, there's that there's that element too. So yeah, that's really interesting. That's actually really interesting where you put it like that way. Because you're right, like they're 
they're constructed within the natural landscape. And I think that kind of contrast is actually quite, now you point out that it's actually quite interesting. I think that's why it houses, that's why kind of just the idea of like cities are interesting to me is because they're man-made. Like we have built these for a purpose within a, an area or areas that are, that didn't have that purpose previously. And I think actually now I'm thinking about it and I'm saying this to you, it's actually, that's probably what interests me about cities is the idea like, like we've made them for a reason. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. Like, oh, that's actually quite interesting. I'm trying to think about like how I'm going to incorporate that into my workout at some point. You know, I think a lot about Mirandi these days. Um, you know, Mirandi's still lives. Yes. The shapes of the houses and the geometric shapes are kind of revisit over and over again. They feel as familiar as perhaps all the objects in his still life or the Cezanne's still life that, you know, he would include the same objects over and over again. Do you ever worry about repetition in your work, though? No. No, I kind of welcome repetition. Mm. I being, it's almost the point in some ways of seeing things over and over again, yet they're different every time. Yeah, that makes absolute sense for your work. But then I think also it becomes, as we said earlier, it becomes familiar. Like you understand it and you get to kind of dive deeper into like the topic or the subject or the person or the thing. Like, yeah, it's like, yeah, that's that's how that's it feels like your own. It's like, this is my series of things to work with. It feels like I've earned the right to do it because I observed for so long, you know? Yeah. That's the trouble with work, um, traveling, you know, we talked a little bit, you're, you're looking at the travel series. Hmm. That is something to overcome the lack of familiarity and not to go into like the pretty picture thing, you know, the beautiful sun's the postcard image, not to, you know, to try and find your way into it that's personal, even though you're not familiar with it. It's new to you. Yeah. That's actually a perfect segue into the On the Road series, which is perfect. So, okay. so can you talk a bit about this series and how it's different from peripheral regions and what it gives you that peripheral regions doesn't well this was um covid was such an interesting time you know if you're lucky enough to be healthy Hmm. and not family members to this um for an artist it was a quiet time with no distractions besides fear and um i noticed that You know, while I've been walking the neighborhood for years and years, I noticed that all my neighbors started walking the neighborhood and doing that and becoming familiar and appreciative of where they live and appreciative of what they have around, especially, um, you know, being stuck in an apartment in the city was very difficult. And we were fortunate to live in a place where you could go outside and walk around. as as far as um, I was so familiar with this place and I wanted to do something different and I dragged a few things out of my closet. I had done three 24 by 24 semi-abstract landscapes from traveling images that I had done. We've taken trips to Colorado and mountains and California and the Pacific coast and 
and just even places nearby the Blue Ridge Parkway. There's some beautiful places that we've been to and I never worked from them. I never did the work from them. And so I had tried a few years ago, wasn't sure what I was going to do with them. And I pulled them out and then I thought, okay, this could be a series. Um, I'm not going to be traveling for a while. Let me go back and look at these archives of images from past trips. And I started to pull out images that could be um, combined together in a series and shown in a grid, grid like whether they were triptychs or a line of images. So again, my parameters were just um, size parameters. I I just said um, they're going to be square, which is you know, not the format that you take pictures in, obviously. And they were going to be um, 24 by 24. And I was going to try to draw, to paint these um, these places without sentiment, you know, without sentimental and nostalgic. And there's Grand Canyon in some of these, and there's a beautiful river at sunset. And then there's also just like a fence on the side of a road. and you know, all kinds of fragments, perhaps, of images, not complete images. Um, the fragments help in combining them. It, it helps in keeping them semi-abstract so that they can be arranged and rearranged in different installations. And I'm always thinking about installations and, and groupings. I, I find that really uh, challenging and fun, and not individual pieces. Hmm. Um, and so I just started adding to that and I started, um, playing with those, uh, 24 by 24s and, and it, it became a series. And, and again, I'm actually doing a few right now. Okay. So the series is still ongoing. I, I started doing a few from this trip that we just took to, um, we went to London for a few days. I only had 10 days. So we went to London wow. and did the museums and then we rented a car which was terrifying for you know on the wrong side of the, road, the, side of the road, of course. I wanted to I wanted to go back to St. Ives I had been hmm. and I had visited St. Ives when I was 21 years old by myself and I was I was just in love with this place it was I was I remember staying in a in a B and B with a view of the water from my bedroom, and I said someday I'm going to go back with somebody that I love. Now, how many years later is it? I don't want to tell you, but <laughs> my husband and I drove um, from London to St. Ives in March, wow. which was lovely because it was quiet, you know, off season. Yeah, it was rainy most of the time. I said it, but that must not have been great. It was gray. It was rainy. It was yeah. moody. It was fabulous. It's England. It's okay. going to be gray. <laughs> you know, and I took hundreds of photographs. We stayed in a, an amazing place way, way, way at the very top. So we had views of the water and all the houses. And I have so much material that I'm going to work for. And we also drove through Dartmoor and um, this fabulous old house we saw. I made a pilgrimage to the Trigani Gallery. We went, do you know the Trigani Gallery? I don't know. Trigani? 
it's um, Judy and Brian Green uh, started this gallery and they show fabulous painters, um, British and international painters, observational painters. You would love them mm -hmm. there. You'll find lots of things you love there. Um, I've admired what they do there for such a, you know, a few years. So it was such a treat to go there yeah. in person. They were not there. They were, I think Judy had an, um, a residency in Italy. So okay. I met her brother. And, but it was just a treat to go to the gallery there. But we drove around and, and I'm doing some paintings from that trip now. I love the, yeah. the British landscape, the skies always moving and and oh, the textures on the on Dartmoor were amazing the light the, was incredible I always find that really interesting how people who aren't from England see England because everybody's like oh it's just always so gray and rainy and yeah that's true we have it is quite a, like that quite a lot but there is so much beauty here but I think it's weird for me because I feel like does it not seem all kind of squashed together because America is such like a large wide place yeah it's it yeah it was a very short visit unfortunately but we were planning to do a whole month but that oh, was wow. 2020 we had to cancel yeah. our trip yeah like everybody else right yeah we were going to kind of do a replay of our trip from 30 years ago where we just got in the car um, and drove you yeah. know let's go to the Cotswolds. let's go you know drive up through the lake district or whatever out of curiosity, like, how did you find London? Um, well, we stayed outside of the center of London. You know, mm. I don't like that whole tourist area. Mm. You know, we stayed in a old place, and um, we would just go to the museums. That's what we did, pretty much. Mm. We did go to see the Dennis Severs house. You know the Dennis Severs house? Oh, yes, house? absolutely. I, yes. That was amazing. Yeah. That's a must. But I, I spent a whole day in the National Gallery. I was out of my mind because... I don't think I'd ever been there. And they, all of these paintings that I've loved my whole life, we would go from room to room and I would just like try not to squeal and scream, <laughs> David, look yeah. at this, look at this. It was just incredible. The Uccellos and the Holbeins and the, the Piero, Della Francesca's and oh my God, the Ven oh, it was incredible. Hmm. Yeah, it was really fun. I also love the architecture and in hmm. London, the you know, the greens and and the beautiful um, apartments around the outside, you know, not the, not the Piccadilly and all that area, but just the surroundings. I love that. The thing I really love about London is how varied it is in terms of like, you have like green spaces, you have very modern architecture, you have very old architecture, like side by side. I personally love like how eclectic it is. It's all a bit like pick and mix. And I like that. And that's what I love about it. Um, but I'm, I'm glad you came over. I bet that was a really interesting experience. And I bet it was, I don't know, because did it seem claustrophobic to you? I'm kind of curious because I just feel like, I don't know. I see America as like a wide, big, large place. New York is very claustrophobic sometimes. Mm. London felt very livable. I, I could really imagine living there. <laughs> I could. I mean, there's so many people I know who would absolutely disagree with you. <laughs> <laughs> It was, you know, you walk through New York and it could be very claustrophobic. I'm always glad to go home after a day in the city. I love the city. I get on a train and I'm in the, you know, 30 minutes. I'm in the suburbs and there are trees and streets and whatnot. 
yeah so yeah. sorry anyway go back to the series so can we sidetrack about london no so in the series of work like you kind of painted open roads or at least some of your images were open roads and i'm kind of curious like do you use the open road as like a metaphorical liminal space because the idea of open roads are very much like you're traveling along them you're heading away from something and heading towards something you're kind of in this transitional period when you're on the road um is that something that was kind of part of your mindset when creating the series i would love to say yes but honestly it's something that you can think about after hmm. it's something that maybe the viewer might see hmm. more than myself i i can tell you that i love the feeling of being on the road I love the feeling of going from one place to another and looking around and and I do a lot of photography now through the front of the windshield these days. Wow. Which is interesting. I'm going to assume you have because I'm just going to assume everybody has. But do you know the photographer Todd Heido? I don't. You don't? Okay, right. Let me write his name down. I'm going to send you his work because I think you'd probably really appreciate it. So Todd Heido is a, I would say, kind of like legendary photographer, um, contemporary working photographer today. His work, he's been doing work for decades, and he's really changed the landscape of um, particularly like night photography, like houses at night. He's known for house hunting, a series he did years ago, of literally just houses at night in American suburbs. You see like various iterations over the generations, but a series he created was um, these really beautiful abstract landscapes through the, which he took through the windshield the windscreen of his car. Um, I'll send you the series. You'd probably really like it just for some kind of like interesting uh, insight maybe. But like, yeah, because as soon as you said windscreen, as soon as everybody says like windscreen or, or outside of a window, I'm like Todd Heider. That's what he did. And this idea of like, because the interesting thing about taking a picture through like the windshield or the windscreen, windshield, windscreen, windscreen, is... Depends on where you are. Plus, yeah, just yeah, as soon as I was like, wait, are they the same thing? I say the windscreen. I'm sure that's English. British. I don't even know. It's a windshield. Do you say windshield? Yeah. Yeah, windscreen. Yeah, we say windscreen. Okay, I'm just, I'll confuse myself. You said windshield, and I was like, windshield? Windscreen? <laughs> so the thing about taking a picture through a windscreen is the fact that it's through a barrier. You're not actually in that place. It's actually just kind of, you're removed from that place. Like, is that something you've thought about? It's actually uh, the best of uh, of circumstances because mm. you can't pull over the car um, all the time. You get killed. And you can't photograph very well. I have done it sometimes from the side with an open window because what's in the foreground will be blurred. Mm. What's in the background is it's very interesting how that happens. Sometimes that's fine and that will work. But. I've taken to, you know, kind of placing my uh, phone in a in a spot right in front of the windshield and watching for something coming up because it's so frustrating when you drive by something. It changes in an instant. Obviously, you're above it, you're below it, and what you love, you've already passed. So I just I'm in a state of readiness and trying to grab that. The fact that the glass is there, it's just it's just what is. You can't really do anything about that. Um, and you can't stop everywhere. That's true. See, that's actually really interesting. Because one thing that I'm actually currently working on 
and I haven't done it for a month or so, but I, because whenever I go on trips, so without trying to get too much, without going to get long winded and too much, like I set myself a goal this year to go on, to go to a different city in the UK every month and take pictures. So at the end of the month, I'll have 12 places I've taken pictures of and that, but, but I always go by coach and my plan or train, but my plan was to, whilst going by a coach, to take pictures out the window and have like a series that are like window images, just like images that are passing through. They're not like spectacular, but the idea like they're, I guess actually almost like your, actually, now I'm thinking about almost like your Prefervision series. They're just like captured. They're things I passed, things I thought were interesting. But the idea is that I'm sitting literally for two hours straight with the camera right against the window, waiting for something to pass by. When you just said that, it reminded me of like, that's what I'm doing with my own work, which is quite interesting. And it's funny. I just, funny thing. As, so, as you do it on the side, you're going to be yeah. doing it on the side. Notice some of your images will be very blurred on the bottom. Yeah. But if you're zooming in to the more distant, it won't be. The more distance okay. you get, the, the sharper yeah. it is. Because the whole point for me is that I love this idea of it being blurred, this idea of it being like you're literally passing it by. Like I love that idea for me. I'm like, that's so interesting to me. Because it's the idea like these are places that I can never reach. They're places that I've only ever just seen. And I love that. There's something about this idea of like inaccessibility that fascinates me because we can't go everywhere all the time. And we can't. And we can't capture everything, which is hard. Peripheral visions, I could go on and on. I could, Hmm. I have enough stuff that I think that if I live to be 100, I'll never get to it all, you know. How do you choose? Like, What is your priority for your work? I just, whatever just kind of grabs me. So let's talk a bit about your creative process. Like, what is your creative process like? And are there any particular routines that you have that help you focus on your work? Um, it's my creative process. It's very, after, I'm not in the studio all the time. I have different things going on in my life. Like, I just had a show up at the Garrison Art Center. I had a one-person show, and it was very wonderful but also very time consuming, getting ready for it, doing marketing. Um, and then while it was up, it just, it, it just kind of took over for a while. And um, when that was over, and I'd like to talk a little bit about how great it was to see all the work in a gallery space. Mm. Um, but when that was over, I'm now back in the studio and I know that that gets a little harder once school starts in a couple of weeks. I, I don't feel quite as cleared um, of my time, but I try to keep everything going because I only teach a couple of days a week. Um, going back to the, the show, having having finally seeing work outside of the studio on the wall as you want to see it is a whole other experience than working. And it's so important important and i i just really loved the people that i worked with at the garrison art center were amazing um the curator kate cahill was wonderful and and their the way they hung everything was very beautiful and um to see somebody else's um interpretation of how your work should, should be seen what your work is about how they group it together you really learn a lot. You learn a mm. lot because you're making the work and you're it's in your studio and you use social media and you post things and you see images one 
one by one. And I don't, you don't really get a feel for an artist unless you see a body of work. Hmm. I just don't, I don't think it's anywhere near the whole picture. I'd like to do more of that kind of exhibiting. Creative process. Okay. In the studio, here, concentrations, start a bunch of paintings. My creative process is I like to keep paintings in progress so that when I'm away for a while, I have like crumbs to get back into the studio, you know, like Hansel and Gretel back. So after if I'm away from the studio for a few weeks, I can just start right up again with the paintings that I've started and I don't have to start from scratch. So that's something that I've learned helps me um, get back to it. And often I'll have to putter for a couple of days in the studio before I can really just get lost in it again. So you get in the zone of just working. Um, the music's always going in my studio. And I just, I look for that place where you lose track of time hmm. and you just get very involved. Do you work to a schedule or do you kind of create when you feel like it? Not at all. I'm very unscheduled. Um, yeah, I grab time when I have it. If I can clear days in the studio, that's a gift. You know? hmm. um, and I'm not the kind of, I've always worked in my home. Yeah. I've always had studios in my home. I have a, a whole attic, couple of rooms up there. Because, you know, I'll work for a few hours, I'll go down and make lunch, I'll throw a load of laundry in, I'll go back up and pick it up again. Um, and I can come and go as I want. I like that a lot. I don't think I would do well if I had to go to work in a studio, you hmm. know, like that. I never have in all yeah. my years. Wow. Oh. Yeah, I feel like for some people, the idea of setting a schedule or like or seeing it as like almost like work can help them actually like motivate them to do it i think sometimes a lot of artists have the the problem with motivation and yeah. kind of um applying themselves i guess like in a way that's positive to their work rather than procrastinating or worrying about like the small details and like how do you stay motivated i don't have a problem with that <laughs> i'm always thinking about work I'm always excited to get back to it if I've been away from it. Um, but I think everybody has a different kind of temperament, you know. Some people do much better with a schedule. Some people are good on a budget. Mm. You know, you know how much money you have. You know what to spend. I've never been that kind of person. I'm always kind of um, last-minute plans. And, you know, I don't do well with thinking too far ahead. That's, that's to me as somebody who is very much like i have everything to a schedule because of my life um that's funny to me i find that a bit like that would terrify me i have no idea how people can live like that that's bizarre to me so it's to me like i need to have an idea of what i'm doing for at least the next week yeah no not a clue but i love that though like that's so freeing you know yeah. it's just who you are i get i think how you how you I, learn to yeah. start life yeah, actually, no, I do agree with that because, yeah, absolutely. Because, like, for me, um, I definitely wouldn't give up the idea of, like, I love structure. I'm a huge fan of structure. Like, I look, I, I, like, I need to know 
I'm going to work at this time. I'm coming back at this time. I'm doing an interview at this time. I'm editing at this time. This is my day off. Okay, this day off is going to be for this. Like I love doing stuff like that because for me, I guess it's just easier. It's just the way I run my life. I'm a very like, well, I have to be organized to do this. So it's like, it works out well. But um, yeah. I love this idea that you are at a point in your life and you've you've kind of enabled, not enabled, but you've created a life for yourself in which you're able to create in the way that you want to create rather than being forced to create at this time or forced to have to do it this time. And I actually really admire that. I think that's a really, really good thing. That's sweet of you to say. Thank you. It's it's a different time in my life than it was. Hmm. Uh, you know, again, looking back on who you were 30 years ago or you know, okay. different people and I had different things to juggle in my life. In those days, I I look back at the time when I was doing deadlines in illustration or my home portraits and teaching and keeping, you know, the parenting thing going, getting yeah. everybody where they had to be and all their appointments. And and I wonder how the hell I ever did all of that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> so I don't know. I think talking to artists like yourself, and there's another artist I spoke to a while ago called Anna Carl. And I feel like the same thing with her, like it really gives me hope and it reminds me that at the end of the day, like you have to keep doing things and things will work out. You know, it's not about the here and now. It's not about being the most popular. It's not about having the most money. It's not about, you know, um, being quote unquote successful now. It's about putting in the hard work and dedication, living what you're doing and actually being here for the long haul. It's not about here, not about having, you know, a quick 15 minutes and being like, this is cool. It's about actually, do you want to still be doing this in 30 years time? Do you still want to be doing this in four years' time? Do you still want to be doing this where the landscape has changed? And I really appreciate that. I like I really do. Like I really do appreciate that. It's funny. I was listening to your your podcast. Was it Anna Krull? Yes, Anna? yeah, Anna, yes. And she was saying something um that I could definitely relate to, you know, how she uh sold a lot of work for like 10, 15 years period yeah. of time and then you know, all the collectors had their work. Well, from for me, the experience was, you know, you had your 10, 15 years as an illustrator and and you're no longer in fashion. It, it's like anything else. And as, as you spend a longer time on this earth, you realize that um, there's going to be these ups and these downs and you're mm-hmm. going to have times where, you know, you're you're working and you're maybe having success in one way or another and then there are times when you're not enjoying that same success i think all the while you just have to keep working you just Mm. have to know that it's the work that's important and everything else will come up and down and up and down and you just can't take that all too seriously you know yeah absolutely yes i feel like yeah talking to you reminds me very much talking to anna because i feel like you're both very similar in terms of like what you started out doing is very different from what you're doing now, but you've done it for such a long time that you're sure, like you're sure of yourself now. And it maybe wasn't that way 30 years ago. And I think that's really beautiful. I think that's the beauty in creating for a longer period of time is that you are more, I say more sure as if you actually are, but like you're more sure of who you are as an artist and as a person. And that now filters through your work in a very different way as it would have done, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And I think that's actually the beauty of, yeah, of creating it for a long time, which you don't think about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
it, you know, the little voice on the shoulder that says, oh, this is what people are doing. You should be doing this. Or yeah. oh, I really like that artist. Why aren't you, you know, as successful as that artist? Why, you know, blah, 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 all these terrible things that you just don't want to listen to. And you just mm. kind of learn how to shut, you try to shut them out. Um, the beauty of, there's there's wonderful things about social media and there's horrible things about social media. I mean, one of the things I love about it is I don't, feel so isolated anymore there was a period of time where i felt like a dinosaur that i was the only person doing observational painting um you know that everybody was doing very stylized very kind of um fragmented collage abstract this that the other you know and then there's all the very concept driven uh, artwork that was being done everything's ideas and everything has to be explained and everything you know has to has to be all about the written explanation of something that was never what interested me and and I felt kind of isolated like am I the only person that really I love drawing I love painting I love skill-based work you know that kind of thing I'm not willing to give up the drawing or the painting or the color or um but I found wonderful artists on Instagram whose work I really admire that have similarities in their concepts. I've, I, and I've even met some of them in openings that I, wow. you know, recently I met um, Claudia Rilling, whose work I've admired on Instagram. I met her in an opening a couple weeks ago. I met Michelle Bondurant at an opening. I'm sure I'm mangling her name. I apologize, Michelle. But, um, you know, you know these this the work and then mm. you have a relationship of kind of similar interests or similar sensibilities and you don't feel quite so alone. Um, it's lovely. The other side of that coin is a negative where, you know, you're a little bit intimidated by seeing too much wonderful work and... Mm. You know, maybe my painting should look a little more like this or more like this, or this one has too many, too many more followers and I should have more, you know, followers. And it's just noise. It's just a lot of noise. And um, so there's really two sides to that social media experience. So would you say that you feel like you're part of a large art community? I absolutely do. Um, I had the most wonderful experience a few years ago. Um, the people that um, I was with in Rome from RISD, we had a we had a reunion, and it was mm. the most extraordinary experience. We spent a weekend going from house to house up in Upper Westchester and and the Catskills and. We stayed together for three days, coming together after all that time and talking about how this all affected us and talking about the art that we saw and how it stayed with us. It was magical. It was magical being together. So the tribe that you have from school, if you're lucky enough to go to an art school and be with other artists, the tribe that I 
am lucky enough to have at Parsons, my colleagues that I've I've gotten to know over all these years. Wonderful, wonderful, generous artists who share their experiences and and their their teaching and their assignments and whatnot. And I've had thousands of students um, who are now artists in their own world, you know, and I've mm. kept in touch with a lot of them and I'm in touch with a lot of them in social media. And and there are there are um shared experiences that you have as artists that your other friends and family will not be a part of. That's just mm. it's just you can't expect them to be everything. And it's wonderful when you do make that kind of connection with other artists and friends, um, it's very special. I think in-person relationships with artists, I think are, are very important. I think they're probably more important, I think. Because I think being able to talk to people, being able to see somebody else's career also grow and change as well as your own. I think that's so, so important to be able to have someone to just sit down with, like physically sit down with and discuss. Because I feel like online is not quite the same. And you, they know what you're talking about, you know. Yes, we all knew We all had that feeling when we drove to this little chapel to see this Piero del Francesca, you know, painting in this place. And it, you know, it stays with you. It totally mm. stays with you. And I brought my family my kids, my husband, my brother, to see the uh, Pieros in Arezzo, the, the legend of the cross. And I don't, you know, they love seeing it, but it, it was not the same experience as, yeah. as seeing it as a painter, you know? Yeah. And this reverence for this uh, the Pieros, it's different. Perfect. So... Do you think that society values art? Um, I think it depends on the culture. And I think there's a great um, difference in American uh, culture and, and European culture. And I, yeah. I don't necessarily think that the, the United States takes care of its artists as well as it could. Do you think that art is like pushed in education systems or do you think it's kind of very much seen as like the um, unstable career or the very kind of like, you know, you're not going to make money off this doing this? It's it. I think that the arts have always had to struggle for position in schools mm. and and um, they're always like the first on the chopping block, uh, yeah. the secondary to sports. But um you know, certain school districts are very uh, uh, proactive in keeping the arts and understand the value of the arts. Um, I just think it varies from district to district here. Yeah, that's a good point. And actually, now I'm thinking about it, I wonder how different it is actually over there in the US to here in the UK. Because, um, yeah, because I feel like definitely it's the same here in terms of like art is always kind of on the lower tier of like, you know, we need to be putting into this or we need to, you know, explore more creativity for people it's always kind of a bit at the bottom which is a shame because i feel like art and creativity are extremely important and i feel like they need to be um considered to be a bit more of a contributing factor to society at large i think actually 
they, you know, this country, especially uh, monetary return is the primary yeah. uh, for um, giving value to anything. And unfortunately, the arts are not always money makers. And mm. that doesn't mean they're any less important uh, in the culture. And um, I mean, you can see it in New York City, how the artists are always the first to uh, pioneer a new neighborhood and bring up the neighborhood. And then, of course, all the financial people come later and then the artists get kicked out because the prices get higher and higher. So, you know, time and again, the arts have proven how important they are to any culture, regardless of whether they make money and they they should and government should uh, be supporting the arts. Yeah. What do you think needs to be done about it? Or like, what do you think can be done about it? Well, I, I unfortunately, it becomes a political issue. Hmm. And so yeah. uh, it's like a seesaw, you know, whoever's in power um, will will be more forward thinking in terms of culture and arts and funding. And, and when it goes the other way, you know, too bad. Yeah. Yeah. So just something I think is a bit of a shame in terms of like, Art is very important. It really helps society as a whole. And it's just a shame that it's not necessarily always considered that way, I guess, more than yeah, anything else. All of the arts, the music, dance, yeah. uh, visual arts, everything. Just first of all, it, if you have a really rich um, arts culture in, in, in any town, it becomes a destination. It becomes hmm. a place that people want to be, a place that people want to live. Um, yeah. And without that, it's it's a stagnant kind of a kind of a society yeah so what has creating art taught you about yourself um i think it it gives me uh, a goal uh, a purpose a purpose you know everybody's always looking for their purpose hmm. in life and for me it's making things it's always been about making things um and creating and so if i have that in mind everything that i do in every place that i go and even people that i'm with everything feeds that goal and i'm thinking about it all the time so i i'm always challenged and i'm always feeling excited and and um i think that that enriches my life very much I would, I would be, I can't imagine being bored, hmm. you know? Which is actually what, quite interesting. I feel like sometimes artists can become bored. Like, how do you make sure that you're not bored of your own work, though? Or like, you're, like you're not kind of feeling like you're just kind of repeating the same imagery or creating the same work? I'm always finding something new in it, always finding something new to look at, always getting excited about looking and being aware of my surroundings and when I see other people's art that excites me that that's also something wonderful that propels me um meeting interesting people being around other artists friends and colleagues that is is very it feeds my creativity being around students is is wonderful they're excited about learning i i'm always learning i'm always excited about learning i feel that it's important to to keep that youth youthful um 
feeling of you never know what's coming next. You have to be open to it. You have to explore. You have, there's always something more to learn. So I have a question for you from the last person I interviewed, which is an artist called Anna McDonald, who was an incredible lady. And her question for you is, do you experience imposter syndrome? And if so, in what situation? I don't think I experience imposter syndrome. I might have experienced that when I was much younger. Hmm. But um, at this stage, I feel like I've, you know, paid my dues. Yeah, you know yourself a lot better now. Yes. Yeah. You know exactly. Yeah, you kind of like, you know, I guess that's sounding too cliche. Like, you know your place in the art world. You know exactly where you fit in. I don't know exactly where I fit, I think, but I know what I, I, I know what I want to do. Hmm. I know what I want to make. I want to yeah. make. But when I was younger and I was getting these jobs and there was a lot of pressure and there was deadlines and they were uh, exciting jobs. And I, I was young and I didn't have yeah. all of the skills that I needed perhaps. And a lot of times I would go in and kind of do the best I can with what I had. And sometimes it was wonderful and sometimes, you know, it was hard. And so, you know, that's an interesting thing, but I haven't thought about that in a long time, but it, I haven't felt that way in quite a lot of years. That's good though. That's a, a very good sign. Yeah, I guess. No, I think it's a great sign. I think I think that's that shows your kind of like assuredness and that you're doing the right thing. Yeah. So do you have a question you'd like me to ask the next person I interview? I have a question. Yes. Do you think that sometimes skill can hold you back? Now that's something that I've grappled with. Yeah. How much you let go of your skill, your drawing skill? your technical skill, which you spend your whole lifetime honing. And then you have to let some of it go in order to, you know, get to where you want to be, your process. And that's a good question for somebody else. Do you find that the skill, because I do think that some artists, and, and I have been guilty of this, that the skill can sometimes keep you from doing more expressive work if you just become a little bit too facile is the word mm. yeah that's actually a really good that's actually a really good question because a lot of artists want to be technically brilliant or they want to be like um quite perfectionist with the work they create or they want to create work that is you know to a certain kind of standard and like you're right when you look at maybe like more expressionist more abstract more kind of quote-unquote looser work it's not really about technical skill. It's about, you know, more intuition, more um, kind of colors, more feelings, more thoughts. And it's kind of like, actually that that's actually a whole different variety of skill sets you need to create work like that. That's actually there's, a really good question. Actually. There's actually a number of artists that I've, uh, one of I can think of right now is Avigdor Arika. And he went through, he was living in the time when um, being an abstract expressionist was what was expected of artists you were supposed to generate um kind of action paintings from within and not be influenced at all by anything that you saw and that got very boring to him i think a romary bearden is another artist who also started in that period of time and um both of them went back to um either observational for arika uh, observational painting um, I, I, he absolutely stopped painting entirely 
for a period of time, gave up color and just started drawing with like a dry brush and, wow. and he on textured paper. And he would do these drawings, which were very, very Surat like very reduced, very minimal. So that kept him from being very technically, you know, overbearing, but he kind of found his way back to getting excited about his work again, which he lost as an abstract artist. And then he uh, gradually brought color back into his palette and started doing portraits and studio still lifes and, and landscapes out the window and interiors, all kinds of things. So his later work was always based on observation. And um, and also Bearden was an abstract painter and then brought narrative back into his collage. He became you know, an amazing collage artist and told the story of his culture and background in his work. Um, so it became uh, not necessarily observational, but, but a, you know, a figurative, more figurative. So I think that, um, you know, letting go of scale, it's a, it's, it's kind of a dance, letting go of it, getting, bringing more of an abstract into your work, but not necessarily letting it take over and still finding what excites you in the world that you can bring into your content and subject matter yeah yeah that's a really nice way to put it and something to think about in terms of like just bringing the excitement back because sometimes i feel like becoming an artist particularly if you're doing it full-time and it's your career i think it can be very much um become mature because like, you have to hit certain points to do certain things to reach certain goals to like make certain amount of money and as soon as it becomes like a tick list as opposed to being like you're doing it for the enjoyment of what you first started out doing so yeah yeah there's an artist um now who i don't know personally but he, he's on uh, instagram i follow uh, chris liberty and he does a wonderful job of um bringing abstract into his observational work i just love the feeling of kind of breaking apart and coming back together and this pushing and pulling in his painting that's very textural and exciting and and feels very authentic and, mm. and, and contemporary actually authentic is an interesting word like how do you like as an artist like how do you make sure that you appear authentic online or like how that your work is presented in an authentic way it's it, it's a feeling deep within, I think, and and trying not to, you know, follow the styles or think about mm. what necessarily is selling. Mm. You know, um, I I think it's easier to sell abstract work in this world and this market. I think it's easier for people to buy quiet paintings in their house, and yeah. you know, there's a lot of things that if I thought about. Um, when I was making my work, it would send me astray. I I had a very strong commercial background. So, you know, I made a living as an illustrator. I made a living doing commissions, the home portraits. And I've always been really aware of not bringing that into my personal work and trying never to, you know, somebody tells me I can't sell houses. That's not going to stop me from painting yeah. the houses you know if yeah. it can't sell you know so it won't sell but yeah. i i need to make what i want to make at this stage in my life at least you know yeah yeah i feel like that's um 
that's a really good attitude to have because I think sometimes artists sacrifice their artistic, not integrity, but their kind of artistic vision for commercialization because like what's going to sell isn't necessarily what they want to paint or they want to draw or they want to create. And I think, you know, there's a, I guess it's quite a fine line and it's kind of like a little bit of a tug of war between what's going to sell and what do I want to create? Because I think unless you're in a position like yourself where like you're at a point now in your career where you are able to kind of produce the work you want, I think it can be quite hard to find that balance. Yes. I always felt like I had a foot in each world. I yeah. was always able to make, you know, whatever living I needed to make with my skills as an artist. So I was always doing my art but I always had my own personal work going at the same yeah. time yeah. and that kept the balance. Yes. I think, yeah, definitely working on personal projects that are a lot more just what you want to be doing a lot more kind of excite that, that excite you that give you interesting ideas and interesting insights into yourself and the world. I think every artist should at least be creating some personal projects because obviously it's how you're going to grow and how you're going to learn about yourself and what you like. Otherwise you'll never be able to grow if you just chase money right. um, for the most part. Um, yeah. Maybe in other ways. So what does that mean to be a successful artist? Um, you know, that's such an interesting question. I I think making your work and feeling fulfilled in making your work is the most important thing. Um mm. and the the market itself uh is so fickle mm. that um if you judged yourself by how well you were selling, you you know. You could never survive making personal work. Hmm. You'd have to just always kind of aim it for what's selling at the mark at the moment. So um, I don't base uh, the success necessarily on the market. It is hmm. making the work. I, I have my lifestyle. I I'm doing what I want to do during the day. Everything feeds everything else that I do feeds the work that I do. And um, sharing it is helpful. You know, finding ways to share your work is very important in whatever venue you can, whatever mm -hmm. venue that you find. It's, it's the difficult, it's the, the part that most artists don't like is having to get it out there. That's, mm -hmm. You know, by shedding some of this uh, more commercial work that I've done in the past, I've given myself more time to try and get it out there. A lot of people do that from the get-go and are farther along in their career. For me, I'm just, you know, at this stage, having some more time to to do that, to enter shows, to send out proposals, all of that. Yeah, because it's important to, to make that balance between creating and marketing because I think the problem is, is that I know a lot of artists who just create constantly all they do is create work um, and they don't necessarily market it in a way that is beneficial for them they just create more because they think that someone's going to sit on Instagram and it's going to sell when actually you have to put it in front of people you have to create opportunities for yourself because otherwise they're not always going to come knocking at your door so yeah I, that's a good point that's a good point to raise actually I mean there's it's a balance of making your work and trying to share your work and then of course there's the marketplace so in your opinion what makes a good piece of art ah 
what makes a good piece of art? Something that moves me. Um, something that I can relate to and recognize. And it will speak to something in me, whether it's in the making of it, in the the quality of the paint or the whatever materials being used. Could be the composition, the skill level, the color or the mood. Um, there's just uh, something is is good um, on so many different levels. You can you can judge it. Hmm. Uh, and of course, it's always subjective. So yeah. it's seen through your eyes. So something that you think is great, somebody else is not going to think is so good. Sure. So what was the last image or piece of media that captivated you? And what was it about it that left an impression on you? Well, I was I actually thought about that. Um, we went to Boston a few weeks ago. There was a Hokusai show at, at Boston and amazing, amazing work. Uh, beautiful woodcuts, the color, the it was as fresh today as when he did it. I love everything about his work and they also showed uh, people that were influenced by him. I saw a show at Betty Cunningham a couple of months ago that was a show of Rackstraw Downs and Stanley Lewis uh, paired together. And that was, they're two realist painters, observational painters, very completely different temperaments, completely different styles of working. Um, and seeing them together paired was so um, exhilarating, and they spoke to each other. The two, the two different styles, the similarities and the differences were very striking. Um, color, light, um, how much stuff they they include in their landscapes. They they both include everything, like mm -hmm. everything, every leaf. Wow pole the the wires the you know very different than what what I do I I'm very reduced I take things out hmm. so it's was, it was really a great show um I love Susan J Walt's still life paintings that uh Tibor shows they're very beautiful small um observational still lifes and there's something very geometric as she uses a grid textural the color they're just extraordinary paintings so i'll see anything she does you know that's really cool and yeah. that's really cool i think that's really interesting that you actually have um ideas to mind and also things that you know you know why you like them as well not just that you like them so i think the problem is nowadays with social media especially we like things because we like them but we don't actually ask ourselves why we like them so i think that's cool I could take apart every painting and kind of list all the things that make it work for me. I mean, I, I have to do that in, in teaching first year. Of course, yeah. So of course. you can shave off each quality uh, that, that needs to be addressed in a, in a piece of work and, and introduce it individually, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think that's why like art education is actually really important because you learn these kind of skills. You learn like the ways of observing other paintings and, and, and identifying ways that resonates with you about it. Rather than just saying, oh, I like it, it's nice, it's cool. You actually kind of understand that and then also develop that in your own work. I have a presentation that I do the first day of class. It's kind of a glossary with, with visuals. Mm -hmm. 
and I take these very abstract paintings and identify a term, whether it's, um, you know, direction or scale or contrast or any of the things. And then we start a conversation about where do you see that in this hmm. piece of work and what is it doing and what is it telling you? And, and, and it's extraordinary the amount of information that you can get out of the most minimal abstract piece of work mm. um, that your eye picks up from. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. I feel like we don't take the time, we don't take enough time to observe what's in front of us. I feel like we're very busy kind of glancing at stuff nowadays. We look at things very kind of like haphazardly or very much kind of with, you know, in the haze of distraction. But I think this idea of actually stopping and asking yourself, like, why do I like this? Like, why do this interest me? Why am I stopping to look at this? Is actually a really good way to kind of consider what is it you like about a piece of work. And that's actually really interesting, actually. If you have the if you have the knowledge of all the elements of design, if you understand the elements of design, which hopefully you get in, in your first year, you can deconstruct any piece of art and address what's working and what's not working hmm. yeah that's really interesting i feel like i want to look at those images in a very different way now actually and kind of ask myself these questions i think it's quite and, important and and most um observational or figurative work you know you'll be listing the same things as an abstract piece hmm. you know? it'll be yeah it's not it's it you know what drives me crazy is when somebody says oh it looks just like a photograph it's just not not the goal absolutely not the goal you want it to um kind of suggest or um give a sense of something rather than just like a photograph what is your opinion on hyper real work that is you know very much like almost photorealistic I think that a lot of people love it. For myself, I kind of like to step back a little bit and see a lot less. Hmm. That's just my personal preference. Okay. Uh, I admire the skill uh, a lot, um, but I I I like a little bit of mystery. Hmm. Yeah, it's just um, it's just something that I on occasion ask artists because I feel like yeah, I would be in the same camp though. I do feel like. With images that aren't necessarily as polished, there's a chance for you to be able to put yourself into that image, or there's a chance for you to be able to read that image in different ways rather than being it just presented to you. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh, this is really nice. And that's you kind of move on. I don't know. That's interesting. I like your the way you worded that actually. That's interesting. The idea of mystery. I think mystery is a key factor in kind of work that I personally really love. Everybody's different. You know, everybody has their their preferences. It's nothing it, you know, it can't be judged in a universal way. So can anybody be an artist? Uh, that's a great question, too. Um, I don't see why not. I think if you have the drive uh, to create and you have the discipline to do what you need to do to gather the skills, I think anybody can do it. I don't necessarily think anybody can draw realistically or, you know, do the figure or do that. But I don't I see a lot of artists that are doing beautiful work that don't have those particular skills Mm. and i would never you know diminish their 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 body of work because of it but you know in some ways you know going back to that question of when do you let go of the skill when is you know uh, for me 
I would feel like I wasn't doing service to myself if I wasn't interpreting something that I see. Going purely abstract, I've tried a few times in my life and it doesn't feel authentic to me. Hmm. Isn't that interesting though? Yeah. Yeah. To me. Yeah. That's interesting because one could argue because it's coming from more of a like intuitive inward place one could argue like it should technically feel more authentic because it's like uh it's almost like it's an externalization of your internal self one could argue but i got i look back and i and i'm very convinced that my sense of composition my strength of composition um came from abstract collage work that i did in mm. school and mm. and photography framing yeah. through the, through yeah. the lens um both those things gave me a very strong sense of compos- composition. Yeah, that's cool. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes so, a lot of sense. Yeah, because it's like you you problem solve how to add things in or take things out or where to place things and what goes next to each other while or what juxtaposes nicely and what's in the foreground, what's in the background. Like there's all these kind of like smaller decisions you make to get the final image or to get the final composition. So that makes a lot of sense actually. Yeah. So I have <laughs> I have two more questions for you. They're both dual questions. So the first one is, what does your younger self think about your work? And what does your work say about you? Uh, my younger self, I think it's a natural progression that I've I've made to kind of a logical destination. Hmm. It, it, it makes sense. And I look back on work that I did years ago, brought me here to where I'm working right now. Um, and what was the second question? I it's uh, what does your work say about you? I I don't know specifically, but I'm sure it says a lot. I I wouldn't be able to necessarily recognize mm-hmm. what it says about me. That's fair enough. I feel like maybe that's not for you to decide; it's for other people to decide. Perhaps I am. You know, it's interesting in a classroom full of students, you see immediately that everybody has their own particular ways of organizing, mark making. There are people that are very meticulous and very slow. And then there are people that are very messy. And every, you know, there's no right way or wrong way. And I, in particular, am impatient. I don't do underdrawings. I don't prepare. I just dive right in and I make these big messy marks. I'm a messy person. I'm covered with paint. Um, and I don't have patience for process, which is why I'm not a printmaker. I just want the paint and the color. And I want to make these big shapes and color really fast right away. Hmm. And that's my temperament and my personality. It's in the painting. It's obviously in the painting. There's a kind of, um, what's it i don't what kind of word you would you say there's a a, a fastness of a, a fluidity perhaps yeah, fluid how would you how would you, you I, guess know, I guess it's like a looseness i guess one could argue a looseness yes and that that is in keeping with this part of me that that's yeah. my term, you know yeah that's interesting actually because obviously yeah because you'll see it in the brushwork you'll see it and like just kind of even just the overall images themselves where they're like they're a bit hazy they're a bit kind of like yeah um, they're almost like misremembered like that, that kind of idea like that's quite interesting actually yeah, even the old work that was much more developed in my yeah. home portrait work which yeah. is which is much more 
you know, de- detail oriented. Yes. I still would. I actually in the home portraits, I would do a, a pencil sketch because I needed to kind of establish the the whole picture and show it to a client and get approval and whatnot. Hmm. And then I would just transfer that to canvas. That was different. But um, I, I still, you know, I, I don't I draw straight lines just quickly. I don't wow. use any tool. I just I'm very fast. So the last question for you, which I'm very sure you'll be glad to know, is yeah. what are you currently working on and where can people find more about you and your work? Okay, so I am in the studio. Uh, some of the the um, the British landscapes are, are creeping in right now. Oh. I've started a couple from, that have some architecture from Cornwall, and I've started some just plain. Um, I think I posted something on Instagram, a small little... 8 by 10 that's Dartmoor. Um, and then I'm still doing my uh, my per- peripheral visions, the small panels. And I started a couple of big ones that are a little more involved. And my I will continue posting up on Instagram and I have the website. Um, and where can you see right now? I don't have any particular shows coming up. I just finished that. I'm taking a breather from yeah. all of that, getting back into the studio and just trying to produce again. Yeah, that's absolutely perfect. It's where you want to be at the end of the day. So right. That's perfect. Well, yeah. Susan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Aaron. It's been such a pleasure talking well, with you. An absolute pleasure. I really appreciate your time and just you sitting there talking to me about your work, which is, you know, incredible, by the way. Like, I think it's. It's really amazing. It's exactly the kind of work I really love. That concludes my conversation with artist Susan Stillman. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments about it, please send me an email over at theflyingfruitball at gmail.com or get in touch via social media sites such as Twitter and Instagram. The Flying Fruitball podcast can now be found on a variety of sites such as Spotify, YouTube, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please consider rating, reviewing, sharing, or subscribing on any of these platforms to help spread the word. Also, please don't forget to check out The Flying Fruit Bowl on Credit UK, and if you're a creative, please get in touch for a chance to be featured or interviewed. If you're interested in supporting the platform further, we now also have a Patreon page. Tier start from £1, and for more information, please head on over to patreon.com forward slash The Flying Fruit Bowl. Additionally, if monthly donations are not your thing, we have a PayPal for one-time donations. I'll include a link to our PayPal in the show notes. Once again, thank you very much for listening to the episode today. Until next time, folks, please stay safe.